Thanks for tuning in to the Sojourn Church Podcast. We are a church committed to the gospel in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. For more information, visit our website, sojournpdx.org. All right, good morning, church. We are glad that you've chosen to uh, worship with us, whether in person or online this morning. Uh, last week, we started a brand new series, We Are uh, the Church. By the way, we had a different graphic last week, and here's the reason why. Andrea, as you all know, is an artist, and she has been uh, working on some of our in-house graphics, and she lost everything she had worked on last week, so we kind of, she threw something together really quick, which still looks really good, like I couldn't touch it, um, but she was able to somehow recover her actual picture that she did for our series, and so she actually, um, she's learning digital, because she's a little more old school with pencil and, and paper and pen, but she's learning digital, and so I uh, just want to point out that she did our in-house graphic for our series. Um, yes, it is beautiful, and it's a way that, you know, you think about worshiping God, like we all worship God and use our gifts and talents, well, that is not a gift and talent that I have, and so uh, she's using that for the glory of God. But we are in this series, We Are the Church, it's going to take us the majority of the fall months to get through, which fall, by the way, came in this weekend uh, with rain, we got an inch of rain yesterday, I think we're supposed to get maybe another inch of rain today, that's, I think that's more than we've had in any single day in the last eight months, and in, at my house, all the leaves haven't fallen yet, but like our side yard is covered in leaves, and so we've got yard work to do, so you know, being part of the church, you guys come to my house and do yard work, clean up our yard for us, it'd be great. <laughs> um, within this series, what my aim here is I want people to love Jesus ultimately. And I want people to love his church, his, what Jesus calls his bride. And so my aim is that for all of us to realize the significance that the church plays, but then also the role that we play in that, that we all have a part to play. When we think about um, team sports, I coach soccer right now, and it was a team win yesterday. Uh, Elliot did score two goals, which is great, but um, without the rest of the teammates, we would not have won that game. And so even the idea of a church and what God has called us to, that we need one another. It's been designed that way so that we all realize that we have a part to play. It's not about just a few different people. It's not about those who went to seminary or Bible college or those who can play an instrument or those who can speak in front of people, but every single person, the body of Christ, we all have a part to play in being the church. Uh, so last week, we opened up with this idea of belonging. And what does it mean to belong to a church? And we saw that belonging to a church means investing your life in a gospel community. That's one of the reasons we call our Wednesday night group gospel community, not small group and not something else. Nothing wrong with those names, but the idea is that we're investing in a gospel community. And that the gospel infuses and really gives us everything that we need as a church and how we interact with one another. And that as you invest your life in a gospel community of believers who joyfully will serve one another to advance Jesus' mission together. And so that's kind of what we, I feel that we're called to as a church. That it's not about us. And it's not about our little um, missions and visions necessarily. But God's ultimate purpose and vision uh, and mission, which we see in Scripture. That's why even on Wednesday nights, as we're going to discuss kind of each week that we look at on the weekends, it's to point us back to Scripture. So what does Scripture actually say about things like belonging, for example? Well, this week, we're going to be talking about welcoming. And what does it mean to be a welcoming church? Um, at Sojourn, and, and we've said this really from day one, so if you go to our website, you'll see this. But at Sojourn, we do this by extending an invitation to those around us, regardless of race, gender, socioeconomic status, or culture, to join us by experiencing the freedom and family at the table of Jesus. And so really this idea that all are welcome. I have people sometimes who email our church or who call our church and say, hey, you know, I identify this way, or I believe this, or I this, am I welcome? And I always say, yes, you're, you're welcome. Like, all people are welcome to take this journey of learning what it means to follow Jesus. And some people may not be comfortable with that, but the reality is that we don't change anyone. 
right? That our job is to welcome people and that Jesus, the Holy Spirit, will change hopefully all of us. Hopefully we can all look back at our lives. If you remember last week um, with belonging, that you kind of start out saying, look back at your life where you were once were and where you are now. And that's because of Jesus and what Jesus has done in our lives. And the reality of God's family is that people will have different backgrounds and personalities and opinions, okay? So if you're any part of any kind of group of people, especially a church, you're gonna find that, right? Um, an embarrassing reality for most of us, even if we won't admit it, is church is often more comfortable if we can do it among those who look like us, who think like us, and who live like us. Ourselves going, man, everyone agrees exactly the way I do, and everyone votes the way that I do, and everyone kind of has that same socioeconomic status as me, and the same, they like the same kind of foods and cultural background. Honest, but the reality is that is not the actual picture that we see in scripture of what it should be. I mean, if you look to Revelation at the end of the book, like people from all tribes, languages, and tongues are going to be worshiping around. So, in, in this side of heaven, um, when we say in Portland as, in, as it is in heaven, if you really just want everything to be like you and look like you, then like that's a really poor reflection. Like, it's not a reflection at all. And heaven might be really uncomfortable for you. So, we might as well go ahead and start trying to reflect that now, which is why I want to. Our, our, our goals really is to continue in diversity, right? We don't want to force it because we are one of the whitest cities in the country, but that our goal is that we reflect the diversity that we have even here of welcoming all peoples and all tribes and all tongues and all nations. Now, this was already becoming a, a, a true, but in 2020 and 2021, on most Sundays, it's also far easier to stay home than it is to come and spend 90 minutes studying God's word, singing and fellowshipping over coffee and donuts. Now, whether you're an extrovert, an introvert, a millennial, a boomer, a Gen Z, Republican, or Democrat, we probably all find it tough at times to relate to people in the church. But when we talk about a church being made up of a diverse group of people, it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be challenging. Actually, I met with a pastor this week. Uh, we were just we were not having an official meeting. We were sitting around a fire pit um, on a Thursday night, and he said, you know, I know that's one of your values is to be diverse and to be multicultural. And he goes, and I love that. He said, you know, that's not one of the values, a high value of their church. But he said, that's a really hard reality. Because it's already hard enough to start a church in Portland, but it's even harder if you're wanting to reflect a, a diverse group of people at the same time. But I would say in the end, it's worth it because these are our brothers and sisters that we should love them. And so even though it is easier to stay home and, and maybe to tune in online, which we're going to continue to offer for a variety of reasons, but that I want us to fight for when we're, when we're not sick. And when we're able to get out of our houses to gather together, is it about just this 90 minutes on Sunday morning? No, not at all. That's why we also gather on Wednesday, but hopefully it's organic and we see each other. But when we do gather, because it does say, and they gathered in the New Testament, and when we do gather, that we are a welcoming community, regardless who walks that door, through that door, regardless how they look, regardless how they identify, that we would be this welcoming community to them. Scott Sauls, he says a membership in the local church. He says, it means joining your imperfect self Okay, so I'm going to stop right there. I'm going to say we're all imperfect. Enjoy your imperfect self to many other imperfect selves to form an imperfect community that through Jesus, all right, that's the key, through Jesus embarks on a journey toward a better future together. So sojourn, we must ask ourselves in the front end this morning, do we actually want to be a welcoming church? Now, prejudice and discrimination, they're ongoing societal issues. We see that in the news every single day. And, we, and, and often talking about them makes us uncomfortable, I feel like. I mean, it's come up a lot in 2020, 2021, but I think for most of us, or a lot of us, it makes us kind of uncomfortable. Like, uh, especially if you're from the majority culture, I think sometimes you find kind of the attitude like, do we have to talk about this again? Like, didn't we already deal with this in 2020? Didn't we already say, like, I'm sorry? Didn't we already forget our forgiveness? But the reality is that God's word addresses this issue in many ways and in many places. And so as God's people, as his bride, as his church, we need to think about these things. We need to be forced to think about these things. 
Now, we looked at this a little bit last week with our message on belonging, where we saw there was no longer a distinction between Jew and Gentile. And so the important reminder for us all as we get started this morning is that we had no right to be welcomed by Jesus into his family. None of us did. None of us had a leg up on anyone else. None of us did anything special. You weren't necessarily born into the right family or the born in the right country or born as the right race or any of those things. So, so none of us, and that's a good reminder, is that none of us had a, a right to be welcomed to Jesus' family. But by faith in him, we have been received by him graciously, gladly, and fully. And so now as a church, what we get to do in turn is we get to welcome, be a welcoming community of believers centered on the gospel. And so when you say, why is it we want to be a welcoming church? I mean, aside from everyone, that's like a Sunday school answer. Like, do you want to be a welcoming church? Like, yes, we want to be a welcoming church. But what the implications of that is sometimes that's hard to be. But the reason that we are is because Jesus first welcomed us when we had no right to be welcome. And so as a result, we want to turn ourselves outward to those outside of our walls of this building that we're using who would, who would come in or as we go out to them and interact with them and to welcome them and to welcome them just as Jesus welcomed us. And so our great need ultimately is to apply the gospel to the problem of partiality and prejudice and live with a kingdom worldview to remember the grace of God, that God has, what he has shown us, and to remember where history is headed. Partiality, prejudice, and tribalism are dark places, but the good news of Jesus invades dark places. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at the book of James. Um, if James is the half-brother of Jesus, and we actually went through James, I think it was a year, year and a half ago. So if you were with us, we went through the entire book of James. This week, it's just one week uh, with this topic on welcoming. But if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of James. We'll be in James 2, verses 1 through 13, where James is going to show us a single picture of what partiality can look like in the church. Ultimately, he's going to say, it looks like a non-welcoming community that involves snubbing the poor and favoring the wealth. And so let me pray for us, and then we'll actually get into the text this morning. God, we come to you, and thank you for another week that, um, as a church, we can be reminded of belonging, that we belong because we belong to you, and then you have called us to belong to one another. God, we are an imperfect community because we're made up of imperfect community, of, of people. But God, that we be reminded this morning that we want to be the type of community, the type of church that not all churches are this way, but God, we want to be welcoming, and we want to be welcome to all people. As we invite them to learn what it means to follow you. And so this morning, I ask that we open our eyes, our ears, our hearts as we look at scripture and God, that your word would speak to us in your name. Amen. All right. So this morning, there's one central purpose, kind of one main aim in our text, which is James is going to instruct us to condemn any practice of favoritism or partiality in order to be a welcoming church. And so we're going to look at this text this morning in three different parts. Uh, first, there's an exhortation that we're going to see in verse 1, and that is James's main point that we will see. Uh, second, we're going to see an illustration. So he kind of comes in to, to reiterate his main point. He's going to give us an illustration in verses 2 through 4, which is his second point. And third, he's going to give us an explanation in verses 5 through 13 on why it is that we are not to show partiality, which is his third point. And so point number one, if you're taking notes, uh, exhortation, showing no partiality. And so in verse 1, James says, My brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And so the main point that James wants to make right here on the front end is that partiality of any kind is wrong in the church specifically, and that we are not to show partiality. Now, why is that? Because partiality is the exact opposite of the welcomeness of the kingdom of God and the mercy that God has shown us. And partiality is the exact opposite message of the gospel, where all are welcome at the table of Jesus. And so for, we'd be wrong for us to show partiality, or wrong for us to put limitations on those who are welcome into the church and, the, and to those who could come and really figure out what it means to follow Jesus. 
Now, on the surface, this is easy to agree with. I think on the surface, we all say, yeah, absolutely. But then most of us are quick to turn, return to our lives, and then it's much easier to actually show partiality and discriminate towards others around us because of difference in political views, or maybe difference in ethnicity, or difference in social status, or, or difference in clothing, and yes, difference in COVID and masks and vaccines. And we have all these things that we will suddenly show partiality toward people and we'll, and we'll all of a sudden separate ourselves. I mean, the U.S. in my mind has never been this polarized and it's, it's kind of seeping into the churches as well, which I think is just pure evil. Like it's never meant to be that way, but we're just seeing it from all sides and we're seeing this separation get further and further and further. And so that's where we looked at last week, we talked about Jesus being the cornerstone. I think as the church, not just Sojourn, but as the church keeps Jesus at the cornerstone, it'll bring all the churches back closer and closer together, even within those views. You know, I know that there's some areas in the country that you could go and, and everyone probably lines up exactly the same, but I've learned in my four years in Portland that, man, you're, you're most likely gonna have a church that has different political views and has differences in social status and clothing and, and just ethnicity and all these differences. And so the question I wanna keep in front of us this morning is what is it going to cost us to love and to welcome all people, but especially those who are different from us? What is it going to cost us in order to do that? Because it's easy to love others when they look like us, right? When they, when they look like you. I don't know when you have people over. Like sometimes it's just, you can tell it's a little bit more comfortable because you're like, oh man, we're like tracking. We're on the same page here. They think exactly like I do and they eat the same foods. It's easy when they vote like us, right? Whenever the political season rolls around, it's like easy to talk to the echo chamber of those who agree with you and that you have the same candidate and you're easy to slam the other candidate. It's easy when they talk like us, like they use like the same lingo or the same language. It's easy when they hold the same moral views and you kind of view some of those hot topic issues or hot button issues as the same way. It's easy when they view COVID as we do. But what about when they vote differently? What about when they talk differently? What about when they identify differently in every single way opposite of you? Suddenly it becomes not so easy. Suddenly you find that partiality and discrimination kind of seeping into your views and your life. Now, the human tendency is to view everyone else as partial, but not ourselves. We kind of view ourselves as whole and complete and like we're good to go, but we view everyone else through this lens of like they're partial, right? It's easy to, to pick out other people's flaws. And we all do this if, if, if we're honest with ourselves and you think, you know, it's, it could be how they view something or how they act about something, but it's easy to view ourselves as whole and everyone else as partial. And at times we're tempted to show partiality based on appearance. You know, it could be how someone is dressing or, or, or how they're not dressing or based on accent. You know, even living in Portland, because I'm from the Southeast, I'm always going to have a little bit of twang. Um, I don't think it's too, too much. But people hear someone's like, ugh, where are you from? Where I've had people say, like, are you from the South? I'm like, yeah, is that a bad thing? Like, it's, just, it's a part of the country where, like, a lot of people live there. Or age, right? Ageism. And we can say, man, like, Portland's a young city, but we might say, like, hey, we want to kind of cap this at, like, 50 Okay, and that might even sound old to some of you. We have people in their 40s, so we want to cap it at 50, and we want anyone else older than that. Or, or maybe affluence. A like, we want to be kind of a certain level, which if we wanted to be affluent, we would have moved to the west side near IBM and our uh, Intel and Nike. Um, ancestry, right? Kind of somebody's background, and, and maybe, maybe their ancestors own slaves, for example. We think, we don't want you, well, you're not welcome here because your ancestors own slaves. We kind of hold that against them. Or someone's affinity, or, or based on their achievement. Right? Like we want only people who've achieved like a certain status. Like we want all college educated, ideally masters, maybe some doctorates, and people who have invented some things that we all use. Now, all of these indifferences, to a degree, they're important in the sense that they are who we are. Right? They kind of make up our background, our history. But they're not ultimately because God looks at the heart. God doesn't look at any of those things, but ultimately looks at our heart and, and where it is in our relationship with Him. 
And so how do we restrain our natural tendency toward partiality? How do we kind of keep that in check? We must keep our eyes on Jesus, whom James finishes verse 1 by calling the Lord of glory. That's how we do that. We keep our eyes on Jesus and go, how is it that Jesus modeled welcoming people? And you think about Jesus, you look at the life of Jesus, like if he was walking around, like he was interacting with people, he was breaking all the cultural norms, talking to people he shouldn't have been talking with, going to places he shouldn't have been going. That's why people accuse him of being a, a glutton and a drunkard. You know, they accuse him of talking to, to women when he shouldn't have been interacting with women. Like Jesus broke all of those down and welcomed all people. And so we must keep our eyes on Jesus to go, who, what kind of people do we want to welcome? We want to be those kind of welcoming people. And so we see our first point is the exhortation that show no partiality because it's inconsistent with the gospel of Jesus. Now, point number two, uh, Ellie, if you want to go ahead and change the slide, point number two is our illustration. So now James is going to give us an example to illustrate point number one. He shows that partiality, showing partiality in the assembly. Pick up in verses two through four. We'll see him give us an illustration. He says, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So here's the scene. They're gathering like we are this morning, and two types of people enter the room. So let's just say that we heard the door creak open right now. First, a man wearing fine, wearing a gold ring and fine clothing. Now this would be like someone driving up in a Lamborghini. They're walking in wearing an Armani outfit, carrying a Gucci bag, and wearing a Rolex watch. Okay, So we immediately pull out the red carpet treatment for them. We're like, this is awesome. Not because we care about all guests, but because we think this person's somehow going to benefit us and their status. It's like me, a church planner, you know, who always seeking money from the outside so we can remain, operate as a church, going like, hey, this person can really help us. This person's going to be able to actually give us some status symbol. Like we're putting them on our Instagram account because we want people to see, like, this is the type of person that's coming to sojourn. And I'd say, hey, go ahead and take the handicap spot right up front. Like, we want people to see that we have a Lamborghini parked in front of our, our building. And we say, like, how can we make this extra special for you? Like, can I go down the street? We don't have donuts this week. But I'll go down the street and get you donuts. Or do you want something from, from the French place? Like, what can we do to make this extra special? Now, at the same time, another individual enters the room. And this person's wearing shabby clothing, as it just says. Now, this is one who likely got their outfit from the clothing closet at the Portland Rescue Mission. They don't own a car, so we see them get off the bus, or maybe they just come walking up. They're wearing a mismatched outfit, and suddenly you see me signaling to make sure that this person is separated from the other person who walked in. I know our space is small, but it'd probably be like me making a beeline, like, hey, uh, let's, let's get you over here because we kind of don't want you over here around this person. We want to make sure they're sitting in the back, maybe even like out in the lobby, possibly away from others. Like We're kind of worried that they might interact with other people, and the other people from Sojourn might decide to leave because of this guest. And so James is pointing out, he says, if this is how you, well, by the way, if any of us do that, like we definitely need to sit down and have some accountability. <laughs> um, but um, especially if I do that, you guys should call me out. But James is pointing out, if this is how you treat people, then you are consumed with yourself and evil thoughts have been exposed, which include your opinions and conclusions. So James takes this very, very seriously because Jesus takes this very, very seriously and he wants us to take this very, very seriously. And so if we were to show favor to the rich person who walked in as described here and disregard the poor person, then we are acting in direct contradiction to God's command to love others regardless of who they are, regardless how it is that they present themselves. And so what James is doing, he exhorts us not to forget God welcomed you when you were poor, and that we all were poor in spirit, that we all were helpless apart from Jesus. He says we were all poor and miserable before Christ cleansed us and closed us with his beautiful garments of grace. 
And that Jesus has leveled the playing field. I mean, this is what I love about the gospel. Like when you study other religions, there's kind of this like, you got to do this, or maybe you were just born the right way, or like there's reincarnation. But like the gospel doesn't say that. The gospel says we all have an equal standing, not because of anything that we did, but because of Jesus. Paul in Romans 15, 7 says, Welcome one another, just as Christ has welcomed you, graciously and mercifully, for the glory of God. And so it's based on Jesus and Jesus Christ alone is why we come and want to be a church that is welcoming to all people. In his autobiography, Gandhi wrote that during his student days, he read the gospel seriously and he considered becoming a Christian. He believed in the teachings of Jesus that he could find the solution to the caste system that was dividing the people of India, which is typically hereditary rank, profession, or wealth. So one Sunday, he decided to attend a service at a nearby Christian church and he talked to the minister about becoming a Christian. However, and this is like the saddest part of the story. However, when Gandhi entered the sanctuary, the usher refused to give him a seat and suggested he go worship with his own people, meaning Hindus. So Gandhi left the church and he never returned. He wrote, if Christians have caste differences also, I might as well remain a Hindu. Now, you like the recoil at that story. I mean, especially as one who previously lived in India and equipped church planners and pastors in India. Like, this is a horrible, tragic story, the treatment that Gandhi received. But the reality is that probably people every year receive that in different churches across our nation, maybe across our world where they, where they go in. It's kind of like, your kind's not welcome here. Like, we can tell that you're this or this or this. And that the treatment that attributed him never following Jesus like, this is what he said is the reason he would not become a Christ follower is because how he was treated when he went to a church gathering, which is why I think it's important. Like, you might be thinking, like, why are we kind of harping on, like, why we want to be a welcoming community? This is why, because I hate for someone in our city, especially our city, where kind of anything goes and you can look however you want and, and you know, every, just whatever you want to be. I hate for us, for someone to come in, to interact with a church who says they're following Jesus, but then to treat somebody differently. And that would be the reason that they never would want to follow Jesus. And so that is what I want to caution us against. That's the, the exhortation that our brother James is giving us. And so we, but we must ask ourselves, yes, this is tragic this happened to Gandhi, but what kind of attitude do we have toward those who are different in, in different backgrounds in our own lives? Right? The reality is we probably all have those people. If, we're, if we just get down deep and we're honest, right? That person that makes you turn your head and kind of make a funny face or the person that you just kind of go like, what are they wearing or what are they doing or why do they identify that way? Author and Christian teacher, Rebecca McLaughlin, which has written some excellent books, by the way. Uh, she wrote one recently that I just read called The Secular Creed. Highly, highly recommend it. She wrote three rules of engagement. This was some time back, but um, she's talking about in a church gathering. The three rules that she has for engagement, she thinks all churches should have. I think these are really, really good, so I think we're going to adopt these. Number one, an alone person in our gathering is an emergency. And so if you see someone who just kind of seems like a loner, or they come in and no one interacts with them, nobody talks to them. I know that's a, that we don't really have that problem in Sojourn, but if we ever get to that, prop, that point, then that's an emergency. Like, that person seems alone. Now, I get it. Some of us walk in places and we want to be alone, but you at least want to check in on the person. Go, hey, are you, how are you doing? We're glad that you're here. Get some coffee. Number two is friends can wait, right? So we tend to want to gather with those who we rode with or those who we already know, those who we're comfortable with. She said friends can wait. And third, introduce a newcomer to someone else. She says, let's all be missionaries at church today. And so in other words, every single week when we get together, we have a chance to live out the impartiality of the gospel, that we get to live as missionaries even when we gather as we would have new people. And, and over the last couple of months, we've had a number of new people, people who I didn't recognize, who I didn't know their name. 
And it can go such a long way just to, I know we're not shaking hands because of COVID, but it can go a long way to give a fist bump or just a hello to somebody, like, who are you? It's, I'm glad to meet you. Where are you from? We're glad that you're with us today. Regardless if they're just visiting in town for the weekend or if they're here to check out, like, what a church could be all about. And so, you know, really it's, it's one of those things where say it's, we're honored to have our guests. I know a lot of churches say that it's really an honor to have people come in and interact with us, whether it's one week or whether they stick around and get a chance to get to know their story. And so this gets to the point of James's illustration, our second point, that be a welcoming church. Which brings us to point number three, our explanations. The reasons why we must not show partiality in verses 5 through 13. Now, James here, what he's going to do is he's going to give us four compelling reasons or explanations for not discriminating in our gathering, if we needed any, any more of those. Or put more positively, he's going to give us four motivations to be a welcoming church member in a church community. So reason number one. Partiality doesn't reflect God's grace and own heart of honoring the poor. Look at uh, the first part of verse 5. He says, listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Now, this doesn't mean that the rich are excluded. So if you come from a, a wealthier background or a wealthier family, that's not what he's saying here. Because we see rich believers in the Bible. But this is a reminder that you don't come to Christ rich in spirit. Or you don't come middle class in spirit. But it says that we all come poor in spirit. In other words, we all came with the same need. And the, and the need was to be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus. And that God welcomed you when you were bankrupt, so to speak, with nothing to offer. And that Christ cleansed you and clothed you with his beautiful garments of grace. Which is why the James refers to us here as beloved. Like now in Christ, he looks, God looks at us as his beloved children, his beloved sons, his beloved daughters you know and so uh, all of us go through identity issues I've, I've gone through identity issues a couple times myself and i read this book it was just called beloved and it just talked about all about how that once we're in christ that we're looked at as that and so i have to remind myself constantly because of jesus i am now looked at as his beloved and this reality should impact how we interact with others that they are no different than you are I've, I've got a, a former Greek professor, and I, I'm probably going to mess up the quote here, but he says something to the extent of, um, we're just one beggar telling another beggar where they can find food once we're in Christ. And that we don't want to forget where it is that we came from. And so when we look at people, you know, I think about sometimes when I look at the bigger picture of where we live, where we live particularly in the country. And we're on the news a lot, if you didn't know that. I know that um, if you're not from here, you get a lot of text about what's happening in Portland. But sometimes I look at the reality and go like, but these people in our city do not identify as Christ followers. So should it be any other way? Like as violence is on the uptick, right? And gun violence especially. And I don't like any of those things. But I want us to exist to help uh, the community flourish in a positive way. But all these things happening in our city, all these negative things, the negative press, I'm like, but should it be any differently? Like these people do not identify as sons and daughters of Jesus. Our hope is that we are here to interact with them, to share that good news and share that love with them. But I don't, I'm not surprised at how it is that our city is living the second reason and explanation is partiality doesn't reflect God's kingdom. Pick up in the second part of uh, verse 5 through 7. It says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme in the honorable name by which you were called? So James is showing us that discrimination exhibited in the community is another manifest, manifestation of a wavering and divided attitude toward God. So church, we see that favoritism, partiality, discrimination of any kind is evil. 
It's just not just wrong, it's, it's actually evil is what James says. And so first, favoritism towards the rich is wrong because it contradicts God's own attitude revealed in the gracious election of salvation. We are actually told in scripture that the poor have a special place in God's kingdom. I think we oftentimes forget that. It's not necessarily prestigious to these people, but the poor. And so I think one day we may actually be surprised to find that the poor custodian or the struggling single mom is the ones receiving more honor than our current rock star pastors. I think about all the books that we read and all those people that we follow from afar. And I, I'm just as guilty as any of you. So I'm not saying don't do that. But then sometimes we forget like kind of those in the shadows, right? Like the single mom who's faithfully loving and serving the Lord in ways that we'll never know or the custodian, or, or other different people. I think one day we may be surprised to see that they're the ones who are receiving kind of more of this honor than, than those who had the big platform, the stage, and the lights, especially as we see more and more stories of, of people who were living two different lives. Second, favoritism contradicts not only God's choice, but God's law and God's mercy. Third, how broadly are we to take James' claim that God has chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith? These people are poor as far as everyday life, based on his analogy and example here. They don't have a lot, and it's obvious. They don't have a lot of material wealth, but they were in fact rich in the sight of God. And their inheritance consists of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him. That is their inheritance, that one day they will receive that inheritance. They may not receive it here. They may always struggle kind of in the world's eyes. They may always not have the nicest clothing and not have the possessions and the worldly wealth, but that one day they will have this kingdom inheritance which is promised to those who love him. And only in the church, think about it this way, only in the church, broadly, would you have a poor person with no formal education, but more mature in the faith, discipling and mentoring a brilliant doctor from a prestigious university who just became a Christ follower, right? Where else would you find that? You wouldn't find that anywhere, right? Because the doctor comes in with this prestigious degree, with a, you know, they're, they're a doctor, they have to go to school for years, and they have lots of money, and so they would always be the one who's elevated in platform, the one who's speaking. But in the church, you may actually find someone who's on the opposite end of the spectrum, socioeconomically speaking, who can't hardly afford their next meal, living paycheck to paycheck. And that person can actually be more mature in their spiritual walk and faith, and they would be the one actually mentoring and discipling this really wealthy, prestigious doctor. Like, where else would you find that? And that is a picture of the kingdom of God. That is a picture of the welcomeness that we're supposed to have in the church and show no partiality. Now, there are still many ways that the church broadly fails the, the poor, neglecting to plant churches in poorer areas, okay? Now, when we were moving to the city of Portland going, where should we plant a church? I talked to tons of leaders, and they were like, just throw a dart and go wherever the dart lands. Like, there's that much need here. But the longer I'm here, the more I've realized, like, there's a section of our city, uh, kind of like deep, far east Portland, where the city neglects that area of the city. But churches have done that same thing as well. Now, I'm not saying there's not faithful churches there. There are. But the more and more church planners, and there's a lot of us in this city I'm learning, is nobody ever seems to call it out to that area of the city, right? So I'm talking to myself here as well. Like we all seem to be called into like the, the, the urban core and somewhat the, the nicer areas and the cooler areas. And so sometimes I meet with others and say, where, where do you think we should help plant a church next? And I'm like, if we help plant one in Portland, I think we should go out that way. Like we should find someone identified that way because we're neglecting that area of the city. Moving the church out of poorer neighborhoods. We've seen churches do this, right? Things get a little bit rougher maybe. Neighborhoods change, right? There's a time and place that we, none of us would probably want to have lived in this neighborhood. But neighborhoods change. And neighborhoods get kind of be known as rougher. But a lot of times what happens when the neighborhood gets rougher is the church moves out. They're the first ones moving out. And they sell their building off. And so what if, the, what if churches stayed? You know, even now, I don't, I don't know that that's going to shift that much, but over the last year, I've heard people say, man, this neighborhood's changing. It's going back to how it was in the 90s. And what they mean by that is something negative. 
And I think, man, are we gonna are we gonna stick it out? Are we gonna stay? Or would we say, no, let's kind of go find a nicer, maybe suburban area that just feels a little bit safer? Or not giving poor believers equal opportunities and access to training and leadership in the church. A lot of times it's those who, who have those degrees, who are fortunate enough to go to school, to, to get a certain level of education, who have the access to leadership, who have the access to training. Go up and say, hey, it doesn't matter if you're high school educated. It doesn't matter if you're a high school dropout. It doesn't matter your social economic status. And, you know, sometimes that might mean we have to do the hard work of going, what if this person can't afford to take off for the weekend, but we want to have this leadership training? Well, maybe we find that out and as a church say, we're going to pay for what you would miss that weekend. We want you to take off. We're going to pay for that. Like Those are those hard realities you have to think through and, and do in order to have an equal playing field for all people. And then churches sometimes will only allow the wealthy and influential ones to make decisions in the church. right? It's easy when you're like, well, they've got the most money and they're the ones giving the most to the church, so we're going to let them make the decision. But no, that's, James says that's not how it should be. That it doesn't matter where they're at on that status that we should all be speaking into to the church. Reason number three. Partiality doesn't reflect God's royal law of loving our neighbor as ourselves. Look at verses 8 through 12. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. And so if we are devoted to Christ, then we are to be devoted to live by his royal law, as James calls it, which is to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so love for our neighbor forbids the church from showing partiality to anyone who might enter its doors. Right? And you think about like, sometimes I think about your, your physical, literal neighbors and some of those people that we may not like interacting with. And then I think for us, like kind of as a church community, like who are our neighbors around this area? And the reason is that partiality is contradictory to the man to love. We see that favoritism towards the rich, it breaks the Old Testament commands of treating the poor equitably and taking seriously in God's kingdom. Now, our city loves to talk about equality and equitability, which are, which are good things. But James tells us the church is to be the place that's leading this charge. So we should actually be the ones who are leading out in the example of what it truly means to be equitable, what it truly means to have equality. Now, for our city, we don't have time to go into this. Of course, they mean like long-term accepting, affirming every single thing, good and bad, just literally be who you want to be. But James isn't referring to that here. James is referring to welcoming all people on that journey of learning what it means to follow Jesus. Remember, Jesus who will change us from the inside out. And so this is biblical ethics in a nutshell. Love our neighbor as ourself sums up everything else that God wants from the behavior of his people toward others. And James wants to see that the law was considered an independent whole, and any infraction was treated as breaking the entire law. So once again, it's easy to nitpick and go, well, they're breaking this, this law, and they're doing this, and so they're sinning. But Jesus himself and Matthew said, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all of it is accomplished. But all of it being accomplished in Jesus Christ himself. So that's that royal law that he's talking about. And so rather than trying to fulfill it yourself, rather than us giving you a list of things to go and do this week and beat your chest and beat yourself up because you can't do it, that only Jesus has and can fulfill this law to perfection, which is why, once again, we keep our eyes on Jesus. If you're going to stick around sojourn long, that's what you're going to hear time and time again. Don't look to me. Don't look to others. Look to Jesus, and he is the author perfecter um, of our faith, and that he is our example on how it is that we are to be a welcoming church. And that the law of Christ provides freedom from sin through the gospel. The freedom to obey God and do what pleases him. 
and is central to God's law. Do unto others what you would have them do unto you. Sam Aubrey said, Obedience to Christ's way is the sign that we have been saved by him, that his death and resurrection have truly gripped us as we become hearers and doers of the word. Reason number four, and then our final verse, and we'll get ready to wrap up. Partiality doesn't reflect God's mercy toward us. So James concludes verse 13 by saying, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, if James's audience continues to show partiality, they will find at the end of their lives a judgment without mercy, as it states it here, which will show they never really possessed saving faith in the first place. So I think we have to be careful with that, but we have to think about these implications. If you find a group of people, and they identify as Christ followers, they identify as a church, but they're not welcoming, and they're showing partiality, James said, you're not actually living out the gospel, and that, that it's possible, once again, we're not the judge, God is, but it's possible that you never actually understood the gospel, that you actually never uh, were truly embraced Jesus and in in, in his message. Now, thankfully, James doesn't end on a bad note, right? None of us like to get a text message. It kind of ends there, and then you just see the dot, dot, dot circles, and they never end. But James ends this section with a word of hope, right? And I think right now, weekly, and I know I don't always do a great job of this. I, was, I, I saw a tweet this week, and I was kind of convicted that right now, uh, people in the church, all churches, we need a word of hope, right? We're in this world, we watch the news, and it just seems like everything's just down. And I know sometimes my style of preaching can kind of come across sometimes heavy-handed and kind of leave you with like, all right, there you go. But I'm trying to get better to leave you with a word of hope. And so James, thankfully, leaves us with a word of hope. He says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, this is unsurprising because of the heart of Christ and the Christian mission. Now, mercy defines the gospel. Christ loved us even when we were unlovely in his sight. And that's the reality. And that would be the bad news. But the good news is that, bad news we're unlovely. The good news is that Christ loved us anyway. Christ loved you and he promised Gave us promises that we did not deserve. He showered us with his blessings, which we could have never earned. So not only do we get the gospel, we get blessings on top of the gospel. And time and time again, that he forgives us again and again, which is why when we, when we take communion, which we're not doing this week, but when we take communion, we're reminded of that truth, reminded of that reality. Man, I've screwed up again. I've messed things up in my own life again, but that Christ welcomes me and forgives me. And the true believers, acts of mercy will prompt them that they are vindicated in this final judgment. And that, that God's mercy will prompt acts of mercy from us, that we will welcome others. And even when we see others mess up in their lives, we're quick to throw the stone, we're quick to judge, and we can be reminded, man, God showed mercy to me when I screwed up last week. Man, I need to show mercy to this individual, right? I need to, I need to love them and walk with them. In other, in other words, you won't treat people with compassion and grace until you apply God's grace in your own heart and turn and reflect to other God's amazing grace and mercy towards you. So you have to experience it first. You have to let God's mercy and grace penetrate your own heart. You know, sometimes if you, if you see someone, you think, man, they're not, they're not extending grace to others. You know, and once again, maybe you're not extending grace to them in that moment, but if you kind of find yourself even, just, you know, you know your own heart, you know your own life, it's, it may be possible you just haven't experienced God's grace in your own heart. We've got to let it go from our head and penetrate our own hearts so then in a reflection, we can then extend that mercy and grace to others as we have experienced the mercy and grace of God in our lives. And then we'll see a visible outworking of true Christianity as his compassion for the needy. Now, as we wrap up, I want us to remember Jesus' words from the Gospel of Matthew, where when recipients of grace will say this, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. 
I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And so that is a reminder, since we have been so welcomed by the Lord of glory, that we get to be a church made up of people who welcome others without partiality, without prejudice, into our gatherings and ultimately into our lives. And this is the type of church that we want Sojourn to be known to be, where we welcome all people, regardless of their background, regardless how they identify, to take this journey of learning what it means to follow Jesus. Because reality is, God welcomed us and we're all on that journey as well. And so church, let me pray and then I'll give you instructions on responding this morning. Father God, we thank you for welcoming us into your family. A welcomeness that none of us deserved. The God that you saw fit to send your son Jesus to live the life that none of us could live, to die the death that we all deserved, to raise to new life, to make a way, to be reconciled with you. And God, because of your mercy and because of your grace in our lives, God, we now in turn want to be merciful and gracious to others. God, we want to be known as people in a church that welcomes all people to learn about you, to interact with your gospel. And God, may we put that gospel message on display, not just on Sundays when we gather, but Monday through Saturday, God, when we're together, when we're not together. And God, may the people in our city experience that reality because of your church, because of your bride, living out this truth of being welcoming. So in your name, by your power, Jesus. Amen. So Ben uh, is going to lead us out in worship, do one final song. As always, just take this time to reflect on, like, where is it in my life that maybe I'm not being welcoming? Who is it that maybe the individual or the people in my life who it's a little bit harder for me to interact with? And that we could give that over to God this morning and that we continue to be a welcoming people. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. You can connect with us and find more available teachings and resources at our website, sojournpdx.org.